This week on the Managing Remote Teams podcast. We need to shift performance up so that range of typical random variation is always within the quote unquote green band. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get there if we're constantly reacting and blaming or punishing or rewarding people based on statistical fluctuation. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed, and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. So welcome, welcome, welcome back. This is Luke Shermer from the Managing Remote Teams podcast. We are kicking off season two, the first episode of season two with Mark Graben. Mark is a serial author and a lean healthcare expert. And we're talking today about his most recent book, Measures of Success, which I found really helpful when running remote teams. He serves as a consultant to organizations through his company, Constancy Inc., and also through the firm Value Capture. And uh, he also works with Kinexus. And initially, he's been focused on healthcare improvements since 2005, after starting out initially at General Motors, Dell, and Honeywell. And Mark also hosts podcasts, The Lean Blog Interviews, My Favorite Mistake, and Habitual Excellence. Mark, how did you get into lean healthcare specifically. First off, thanks for having me here, Luke. And, and thank you for the kind words about the book. As, as you alluded to, my career started in manufacturing. I have a, a bachelor's in industrial engineering. So sitting in a operations management course in 1994, I was introduced to pieces of the Toyota production system. It was being framed as production scheduling and inventory management, which was good knowledge, but that was a very incomplete view of what we would call the Toyota production system or lean. As you mentioned, I started my career at General Motors. Those two years were like an accelerated graduate program where the year one was working under a very traditional General Motors plant man, a regime of fear and blaming and shaming. And it was a, a pretty nasty environment. And I was looking to quit and get out. It didn't take me long to realize that it was pretty toxic, but I was learning a lot. I did have a couple of good mentors, but then year two of that General Motors experience was under a Toyota trained plant manager. Wow. It was one of the original General Motors people who was sent to the Toyota joint venture plant in California in the eighties. Hmm. And that was such a world of difference. The plant manager is pretty much for, we've got 800 employees on site. The leadership behaviors and uh, it, it flows downhill, right? So things really started to change dramatically where we, we were trying to implement lean tools, but the culture wasn't right for it. And a new plant manager brought in a hugely different culture. So then fast forwarding a bit, I did leave after year two, I had a chance to go to MIT. Um, for, for grad school. And then I, I still thought my career path was going to be manufacturing. As you mentioned, Dell, then I was at a startup software company in Austin, Texas, then Honeywell. And then 2005, my wife was taking a new job and meant moving, which put me on the job market. And I got a call from somebody at Johnson and Johnson where they had a basically a lean healthcare consulting group. 
that worked all out in the field with medical laboratories and hospitals. And that was my introduction into lean healthcare, because at the time, I don't think any hospital would have hired me. But the fact that I was part of this team at Johnson & Johnson, that was a mix of clinicians, former J&J manufacturing people, and outside manufacturing people. Thankfully, that Johnson & Johnson brand name was something that allowed enough trust for me to come in and start working with healthcare organizations. And I thought this could be an experiment for a year or two, because you know, I was changing jobs a lot at that point in my career. But as it turned out, I've, I've, it's been a real privilege to work in healthcare, and I'm still at it some 15 years. 16 years later. So with Lean, the way that I understand Lean and Toyota to production system, it's very systems-based. And how, when you're, I guess when you're first working with people, given that you view the world very much from the point of view of system, how do you help people who don't actually naturally think in those terms to, to accept the fact that often the system of work is responsible for productivity. And, and the system is also responsible in a lot of ways for safety and for quality and for patient satisfaction and other measures. It's funny. It's, it's, it's almost more, I would almost frame it more in terms of how do you help people unlearn things? I'll cite Barry O'Reilly, who's got a book called Unlearn, right? So especially once we get education and then experience. And a lot of times I'm working with people in healthcare who have decades of experience as, let's say, a nurse or as an executive. Sometimes I may somebody apparently got the job pretty young because they've been CEO of that hospital for 25 years, which I don't know if that's always uh, a positive. But there are so, you know, one reason it's not a positive is that there are often just old habits ingrained. I referred to General Motors, this blaming and shaming environment. I learned in healthcare, they very frequently talk about the dysfunctional culture of naming, blaming. And when something goes wrong, they ask who screwed up instead of asking a more systems-based question around what went wrong, what allowed that to occur. So I think one of the great injustices of healthcare, and this is not just an American problem, is when poorly designed systems or badly managed systems or systems that are not being improved with everybody involved, it harms patients far too often. And then it also, sadly, and I think, again, unfairly, unjustly, ends up ruining the careers of individuals who then get blamed for the systemic error. That's a problem. So how do you help people unlearn some of those habits? One exercise that, that I've found very helpful, and I write about it in Measures of Success, is something made very famous by W. Edwards Deming back in the 80s and going into the early 90s called the Red Bead Experiment or the Red Bead Game. And, uh, and participate, not just reading about it, but participating in it in a hands-on way, I found is actually very eye-opening for healthcare executives and physician leaders. It's in a nutshell, it's a silly game where you have a plastic container full of a bunch of thousands of beads and 20% of them are red. So that's part of the system as it exists. And you have a paddle that you dip into the beads. And part of the, the fun of the game is that we have this kind of obnoxiously precise procedure for how you're supposed to do this. And you dip, you dip the paddle into the beads and the paddle has 50 holes. So you, you, and I'll pose it you know, to, to the listeners to think, well, there's 20% red beads. On average, how many red beads out of 50 would you expect to have on the paddle? On average, 10. That doesn't mean you get 10 every time. Like the, the variation 
is that you would typically get anywhere between three and 17 red beads on the paddle. So we have six different people all dipping their paddles into the box. And you pretend as the facilitator, role-playing a manager, that the number of red beads is somehow an output of that individual's, of how they did the job. And then you can start rewarding people and punishing them and put someone on probation. And then you put someone on probation and guess what? They regress to the mean. And then they do better the next time. And then you pat yourself on the back as the leader. Clearly, you know, threatening that person's job improved their performance. It's all nonsense, right? It's Got all them motivated. <laughs> yeah, I motivated yeah. them. And you offer incentives and you set a quota. And again, like the performance is absolutely driven by the system. And people playing the game are in on the joke. <laughs> yeah, like people fall into it where um, like you know, I fire the bottom three performers after a couple of rounds of this. People do, it's funny, it's hard to tell. Are they still role-playing or are they upset? They've been fired for what is essentially <laughs> for pulling out beads. <laughs> but then we, we draw connections then to the workplace. I, I facilitated one of these red bead games and a chief medical officer who wasn't playing the game, but he was in the front row. Like he was very engaged. He wasn't just hanging out in the back of the room. And so in, in the debrief discussion, I'm asking people for their reflections and observations. And I could tell he had really thought about this during the game and he, he stood up. This has helped me see that all of our quality and patient safety metrics are essentially red beats. One month, the number is better. The next month, the number is worse. It doesn't, there's no cause and effect to ascribe to that variation in performance. It's just fluctuating around an average. And instead of reacting to the most recent data point, whether you think that's moved in a good direction or a bad direction, you need to improve systems. And that's why you know, the subtitle of my book, Measures of Success, is react less, lead better, improve more. Because a lot of that reaction, it's just, it's performative. It's a waste of time. And, and it's a distraction from the real work to improve systems, which is by nature less reactive and more systematic. So the red bead game, is eye-opening. It sounds silly. It sounds like a dumb exercise, but when you go through it, it is eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of a particular thing that you go into in measures of success, the process behavior chart, what is it and what does it help you find out and why is it useful in this context? Yeah. So there's the conceptual point first off that says, don't react to what we could call routine variation in a performance metric. So what this chief medical officer was observing, if you look at a rate of say patient falls, some proportion, that number last month was one point, the month before the number was 0.9. That changed from 0.9 to 1.2. I can't determine this from two data points. And that's another trap people fall into is just continually comparing two data points. So yes, it is a true statement that 1.2 is higher than 0.9. It's true, but it could be meaningless. Yeah. Especially when, again, leaders say, wait a minute, oh, we need to form a committee. We need to do some A3 problem solving. We need to look for the root cause. There might not be a root cause because the same system of the same people doing the same work the same way with similar patients is not always going to generate the same number as an output there's always going to be some level of variation. So a process behavior chart allows us to put a little bit of math to it. So we're not guessing like what is routine variation and what data point or data points might be an outlier, or you could call it unusual variation or 
a special cause variation where there, there is a root cause to look for. The system has changed significantly. So that's the time to react. But so anyway, process behavior charts, the technology behind it is a hundred years old. I don't think that makes it outdated. I think it's just, there's something science discovers and that knowledge is good. Like the idea that germs spread and cause disease. That's an old idea at this point, but it doesn't mean it's outdated. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's still true. There are some who will deny it, but yeah. it, it's accepted as true. So this technology, more generally speaking, can be called statistical process control as a methodology. Uh, control charts is another term that would be used. This is nowadays probably more often taught in what we would frame as Six Sigma methodology, but it, it long predates Six Sigma, but it is a statistical method. So doing this in an audio format, if we were to create a process behavior chart, first off, give me more than two data points. If we've got a monthly metric, give me at least the last 12, if not you know, better yet, the last 24 data points. And then we plot those visually, like not a list of numbers, <laughs> but a chart. Start off with just a run chart in, or Excel calls it a line chart. Even if you don't wanna use the full-blown process behavior chart methodology, man, it's just a, a line chart just illustrates so much more. You can start seeing these patterns. Yeah. Is there fluctuation around an average? Does there seem to be a linear trend line that's a true linear trend? Or is performance, what, what happens more often is that if you look back over 24 months, that metric, whether it's falls or customer acquisition cost for a, a startup software company, that number could be fluctuating around an average. And then at some point, it takes a step function upward yeah. and is now fluctuating around a new average. Help us visualize that. And then we can have a, a better chance of understanding cause and effect. Things mm -hmm. that we've done to try to improve the metric or things that just happened that, that weren't our actions. So you draw a line chart. Friends of mine in the NHS England teach this methodology and they use a hashtag on social media, hashtag plot the dots, visualize the data. Humans are better at looking at a run chart than they are looking at a list of numbers. Yeah. So then um, the other features of um, a process behavior chart is that for a baseline time period, I'll hold up a chart for, for video's sake. Get this out of the way so I can still see and get not block my microphone. So you can see we've got data there. Then we calculate an average and plot that as a horizontal line. Mm -hmm. And then the red lines on the chart are calculated. We call these the lower and upper limits. And I'll, I'll put this back up in a second. These are calculated. So it helps answer the question of we established for a baseline period, how much variation around the average is typical. Mm -hmm. And we use that to calculate these lower and upper limits. And so then the one thing the chart tells us is that basically any future data points within those red lines, within those guardrails, there's no root cause for any single data point that falls within um, those limits. So here's an example of a chart that shows that behavior. Like mm -hmm. this is data about how many people visit my blog every month. Yeah. Again, it would be a waste of time to try to explain any one of those single data points. Yeah. Just not a good use of time. So then there, there are three rules that we use when evaluating a process behavior chart. So we look for any single data point that's outside of the limits. Yeah. I'll show this visually. There's a second rule that, that says, and there's a good statistical basis for this, that if you have eight or more consecutive data points, that are all above the, the baseline average or all below the baseline average, 
that is very unlikely to be random fluctuation. Mm -hmm. We'd be like flipping a coin and getting heads eight times in a row. Like it's yeah. possible, but it's not going to happen very often. And then there's yeah. a third rule where if you see a cluster of three consecutive or three out of four data points that are closer to an average than they are to the limit, that would be uh, indicative of a system change. So we're mm -hmm. filtering out noise in the system. Mm -hmm. Stop reacting to the noise in the metric, but make sure we do react when we see one of those statistical signals. Yeah. Yeah, so it's being able to know when it's random and when it's not. But from a mental model standpoint, people do not like to think that the outcome of a system, the business measure is quote unquote random. Like yeah. I think a lot of times people think there's this deterministic mind uh, mindset that says if we do the same work every day, we're going to get the exact same output. And you can test this by using an example in a book. One perfect way of illustrating random variation versus systemic um, change or unusual variation is uh, to step on the scale every morning. You are not going to weigh, if you're, especially if your scale has you know, a decimal point after the number, you are not going to weigh the exact same number every single day. Your weight, if it's stable, is going to be fluctuating around an average. Now, if you go out and have a really extravagant weekend where you eat and drink a lot, then you may see, or if you've stopped exercising or you're drinking more because of the pandemic, or there could be some system change then that would shift the average that your weight is fluctuating around. So I think that example where you can measure your blood pressure, you could do all kinds of measures around your body as a system. Yeah. And then think about that, how that translates to a workplace as a system or a collection of systems. When do you know it's worth looking for a root cause? When any of those three statistical signals are detected. So the beauty of the process behavior chart is that if we have some baseline period where the metric is just stable and fluctuating around an average, again, we calculate those lower and upper limits. And then what the chart does in a way, it predicts future performance. It yeah. says future performance is going to be centered around this average within these limits unless the system changes. Yeah. So a process behavior chart is a way of detecting system change, whether that's in the good direction or the bad. It's also a method we can use as we do improvement experiments. We have a hypothesis. If we do that, make this change to the system, performance will improve. The process behavior chart helps us understand if there's a statistically meaningful change that's been invoked in the system. Because the last thing you want to do is make a change, look at one data point and say, that data point's better than average. Hooray! Based <laughs> off of a two data point comparison. Like it's not necessarily dishonest. It's just maybe misleading yeah. where people declare victory and they say, well, we made this change to the system. The number of patient falls was lower last month and we throw a pizza party for the team. Punchline of the story is the next month when the number flips back up. <laughs> and then leaders sometimes mistakenly think, oh, People must not be following the new standard anymore. Yeah. It could be that they were never following the new standard to begin with. Maybe there was no real system change or the attempted system change wasn't really a, a leverage point, right? So yeah. if we try to make a change to the system, we see ugh, the metric is still fluctuating around the old average. We haven't really changed the system. So it's a really useful tool, but for A, ongoing monitoring of your metrics, to detect changes, but then secondly, to help prove or evaluate cause and effect impact of 
system changes and system outputs. The main thing I found these these this tool useful for is basically to minimize spending a lot of time with status meetings <laughs> because yeah it, it basically if, if there was a change and i knew it wasn't that it, it, it wasn't a system change then i i bluntly said that it wasn't so therefore there's no point in talking about it <laughs> yeah so you know at kinexus you mentioned earlier um there's a, a software company i've been involved with um, for the last 10 years um as an advisor and i have a, a, a ownership stake in the company. The management team there has learned process behavior charts for me, and they will apply it to these uh, different metrics. Again, I'll use, you know, customer acquisition costs. You chart that over time and that number is fluctuating around an average. And then there, there's some change to the system and, and maybe that customer acquisition cost dropped and, and you see it. Okay. Now it's fluctuating around a lower average. Do we understand why our customer acquisition cost dropped? And the Kinexus leadership team has gotten really good. And it, 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 there are still times where I have to remind them because again, habits are really hard to break. When I hear the conversation of we're doing the review of the metrics and why is that metric better than last month? I'll say, wait a minute, stop. That's the wrong question. That number's <laughs> fluctuating around an average. Instead of asking what, what changed last month where the honest answer might be nothing. Yeah. But most organizations, you can't say that. So the boss asks you, why did that number change? You cook up an answer. Yeah. Don Wheeler, who's one of my um, teachers and mentors on this, and he, he wrote the foreword for the book, he calls it writing fiction. Hmm. It is not a good use of time in the organization for people to be writing fiction to explain average uh, you know, routine fluctuation around an average. It's just stop doing that. Now, if you don't like the average that your metric is centered around. And if you don't like that calculated range of the limits, what do you do? Improve the system. The answer to how do we improve the system is not going to be found in asking why was last month better? So we have to yeah. change some of the questions that we're asking. And to your point, as we go through these reviews, stop spending time explaining every up and down in the metric and rededicate that time, either reacting to the one metric that shows the statistical signal, hmm. Or look at the metrics where you need to shift the level of performance and, and do your improvement work that would be focused on improving the system and then look for the results of that in future data points. That's a great direction. So how do you know you've arrived at a useful metric if you're looking at a whole mm -hmm. spreadsheet full of numbers? So there, there's this entirely um, different but incredibly important discussion of what do we measure. My book doesn't really address that. I try to build on and cite Eric Reese and the idea of vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. I think that's a useful input. That's a good discussion. That book, Measure What Matters, John Doerr, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. And in Lean, there's a methodology that people will either call strategy deployment, or if they would like Japanese terms, they'll call it Hoshin Connery. This whole discussion of what do we measure? Like, what are the broad categories of measures that matter? I learned in the automotive industry, and this translates well into healthcare, the broad categories safety, quality, uh, delivery. So like on-time delivery in healthcare, we could refer to waiting times and access to care. So I might say access in healthcare, safety, quality, delivery, cost, and morale. Like pretty much everything falls into those five categories. Now you have financial measures you're going to look at. The, the, those five categories are maybe your operational measures, where if I'm improving measures in those five areas, I would expect to see that to flow through into positive financial metrics. But 
I think there are you know, a few things that are true. You know, measuring more things isn't always more. So again, I'll draw a parallel to health. There are literally hundreds of laboratory tests we could go and have done today to measure different enzyme levels and things related to different organs. And we're not going to go do those lab tests every week because yeah. we don't need all of those measures all the time. For different people, they may measure weight or blood sugar or blood pressure, things like that. So I think of the smaller number of key health indicators for the organization. And I like to remind people, it's a different acronym than OKR, but KPI, that stands for key performance indicator. Sometimes we have a kajillion process indicators. So we have to think of what matters to the business. What are the key indicators? And, and, and we have this hypothesis that says, if we move the needle um, on these metrics, then the business is doing better as a result. So we don't want to think about vanity metrics. You know, so I bet I've read Doerr's book, even though I was having trouble remembering uh, his name. I think that's a perfectly fine methodology. That book does not answer the question of what do you do with the metrics over time? So right. I've tried to propose to people that I'm no John Doerr, but Measures of Success, I think, is a perfect follow-on to his book, Measure What Matters. So Measure What Matters, and my book would be what to do with those measures that matter. The process behavior chart methodology won't tell you what to measure, mm -hmm. but it's a, an amazing methodology for how you track and treat those metrics over time. And the, the door book just doesn't, doesn't address that. It, it has enough that it does address. Yeah, of course. So I think one of the things that you talk about quite a lot is, is the importance of support from leadership when monitoring these metrics. So I think in, in, there's one passage where you're talking about like pressure without support resulting in distorting the numbers, distorting right. the system or improving the system. So how do you get, how do you provide the kind of support that does make people happy to move in the direction of improving the system as opposed to one mm -hmm. of the other things? So there are, there are some people, there, there are different laws or quote unquote laws thrown around. There's one that says anytime a metric becomes a target, it ceases to become a useful metric. I, I would challenge that. Hmm. To me, the problem is not setting a target. The problem is the behaviors of leaders of what happens when the organization or the team does not hit the target. Mm -hmm. So when the reaction to you're not hitting the target is naming, blaming, and shaming, threats, punishment, what have you, or even if it's on the more positive side, if we offer incentives and rewards and bonuses, either of those can become very dysfunctional because a lot, oftentimes it's easier to distort the metrics or to distort the system. It's easier to do those things sometimes than it is to actually improve the system. So leaders need to make sure they're not trying to drive the organization through fear that they're not trying to drive the organization just through incentives and objectives. Like we need to understand the systems of work and leaders need to not just support improvement. I think leaders need to be coached for improvement in different ways. So one other point I'll make coming back to the process behavior charts, those two lines that are the guardrails are again, calculated. Those lower and upper limits are independently calculated based on the data. Those are different and independent from a goal or a target that mm -hmm. we might. We can combine those two views of a process behavior chart and the typical range of variation and compare that to our goal. Because what gets really dysfunctional is 
a metric where the average is very close to the goal. Because mm -hmm. then you're going to have not just the reaction to better or worse than the previous data point. Now you have the double reaction of the metric was green and now it's red. What happened? The answer is nothing. And I hear these rules of thumb. This will sound like a rant. Please, short. Please. There, there's a method taught that's very frequently taught in lean management methodologies that I think is just, I think is outdated and insufficient. There will be these rules of thumb that say, okay, we don't want to react to every red, but if you have two consecutive reds or three consecutive reds, then you need to start an A3 and you need to do root cause analysis. And like, that's nonsense. The fact that the metric has shifted from red to green or that you have two or three reds in a row, again, that could be just noise in the system. It's nothing worth investigating or explaining. Now, the flip side to that is, and goals and targets are quite often arbitrary. That's a whole different discussion. But let's say you're not happy because this metric is fluctuating between red and green. What do we need to do? improve the system. We need to shift performance up so that range of typical random variation is always within the quote unquote green band. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get there if we're constantly reacting and blaming or punishing or rewarding people based on statistical fluctuation. So that's one of the other organizational habits that we need to, to change. We need real improvement, not fake improvement. Yeah. Yeah. Because then the, the punishments and the rewards are just as random as the underlying processing. And a good sign that the system is performance driven, or I'm sorry, that the performance is system driven. A good way to know that performance is system driven is when you replace individuals or you replace a leader and performance is still basically the same. Like you that in the red bead game, I could fire the bottom three and bring in three new workers. The system has not changed. Adding new people isn't a meaningful change to the system would be mm -hmm. a, maybe a better way of saying that. Again, like these lessons from the Red Bead game do translate really well, I think, into real workplaces. What's better, focusing a larger organization on a goal or on the process and why? Yeah, I'm not trying to dance around it. I think the honest answer to your question is both. Yeah. We need to look at the process or the processes or the system and the goal, um, what the output of that system, how that compares to the goal. And again, we've got to be careful. Don't read too much into one or two data points or the difference between those data. You need to look at data over time. Again, 12, 15, 18, 24 data points and, and use that to see how is our typical range of performance. Stop talking about average performance. You also need to talk about the variation and the range. How does that compare against the, to the goal? And how do we drive more systemic improvement that's not just reactive? So mm -hmm. that means studying the work, understanding the processes, talking to the people who do the work and engage them. This process behavior chart methodology fits perfectly well into a lean management philosophy. We're not using charts to replace our knowledge of the system. We're not managing by charts so that we never need to go out into the real workplace. things going on. The charts can sometimes point us to when and where we should go investigate and stop wasting the time typically spent reacting to everything uh, in every metric. So given the importance of time, how do you see this applied in more of a startup environment where there just isn't that much history or is it just not yeah, as relevant no. at, that, at that point? That, that's a really good question. So two, two thoughts come to mind. Like 
while it's ideal, if you if you can do a retrospective, if you have historical data, give me 24 data points, 12 would be fine. There's diminishing returns, statistically speaking, like when you dig into the PhD level work behind this, which I'm not a PhD, I'm a practitioner. Having more and more data points that go into the calculation, like very diminishing returns after about 25 data points. The minimum number of data points you would need to calculate a usable average and limits would be just four. So another way of making sure we have more data points, I, I don't know why, you know, like so there are certain metrics we, we could ask, why are we, why is that a quarterly metric? Why not look at it monthly? If it's a monthly metric, why not look at it weekly? Some of it depends on like the cost of compiling the metric. A lot of cases, this is automated. So if we look at a metric weekly instead of monthly, one advantage is now we have more data points that we can use in the calculation. Two, we can detect signals more quickly. Hmm. If one bad week is going to lead to a bad month, we'd rather discover that sooner than later. later. You could calculate, you could do a process behavior chart with four data points, because again, that'll help establish the pattern of, is this noise or is this signal in the metric? And then as we add more data points, we can refine the metrics until we hit a point where, okay, now we have, let's say 20, 25 data points. And now we lock in the average and the limits. We don't continually recalculate them once we hit a good um, statistically solid baseline. But then from that baseline, we look and see, has the system changed? So for a startup, I use an example in the book with Kinexus. There are some systems where the metric is not just fluctuating around a horizontal average. It's actually fluctuating around a linear trend line. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a more advanced method where th- there's different math, but conceptually it's the same. If that number is fluctuating around a linear growth rate, so everyone wants to start seeing exponential growth. Yeah. You can use a, a, a form of this process behavior chart to see where maybe we are shifting from linear growth into exponential growth. Oh, that's really interesting. Or, or the, the slope of the linear growth has changed, which would be a good thing, even if it's not quote unquote exponential mathematically speaking yet. But I think in a startup, I would argue this methodology of process behavior charts is so useful because as a startup, we should be doing a lot of experiments. We should be testing hypotheses. We should be understanding cause and effect and learning from that. And I think if using process behavior charts deepens our learning, we're we're not creating these false assumptions of uh, incorrect assumptions of cause and effect. We can I think better determine that by using process behavior charts. So I think I've seen it firsthand with Kinexus, super helpful for a, a high growth startup. Really interesting. Have you, given the last year and a half, have you seen any interesting uses of this in the context of remote or distributed companies and teamwork out of curiosity? We need to think about the cause and effect and, and make sure we're not misleading ourselves. Sometimes with somebody with an agenda will cherry pick a data point or two to quote unquote, quote unquote, prove the assertion they're making or the hypothesis that they're stating. I'll use one quick example because this was a real example. A hospital in Ohio that I taught process behavior charts and they were using it very broadly. In the, in the early days of the pandemic, March 2020, they were measuring the, the rate of employees out sick. Hmm. every day. And they had that on a process behavior chart. And they had started to learn like the number of employees out sick jumping from 10 to 20. Maybe that's noise within the process behavior chart as the limits had been calculated. 
but the virus had not reached that part of Ohio, but they were looking for a leading indicator. If you started seeing more employees out sick and starting to look for a signal on that chart, then you might say, oh, okay, now let's get people tested. Um, has the virus reached this part of Ohio? Sorry, I, I, I'm taking a pause to think there was a time when the virus had not yet gotten everywhere. Reached everywhere, yeah, yeah. But, but they were using process behavior charts to, again, avoid wasting time trying to explain every up and down and looking for a signal where then you know, you've got to go test your hypothesis. It could be HR data like that. It could be agile metrics that are popular. It could be business metrics. One of the insights that I really like from your book is that this tool helps prevent a situation where people are blamed for things they have no mm -hmm. control over. Can you give an example or, or a story of, of, of where this kind of thing helps? I think of, I've used this methodology Sometimes it's an uphill battle. I've tried to introduce this methodology. I've used it with metrics in the business, even if other leaders weren't interested in the method. Because one other reflection, process behavior charts are a solution yeah. to a problem that most people are either unaware of or they don't realize that it's a problem. They don't realize there's a better way. Yeah. But I think you, you can apply process behavior charts, for one, for time series data. And if, if there's been a slight dip downward, in in sales don't go fire the vp of sales you know don't make a knee-jerk reaction don't make a huge change to the system based off of just the appearance of noise so be be careful about that there there is also a different use of process behavior charts where it's not time series data mm. so there's an interesting application and i'll leave it again to the statistician don wheeler to prove this out statistically, because I've learned this from him and he's a good source on this. If you are comparing people or teams or sites in a snapshot in time, a snapshot, you could rank, I would hate to think about productivity metrics for developers, but if you had some productivity metric for a hundred developers, mm -hmm. you basically use the same methodology. You randomize the order in which people appear. So it could be by last name, might be a perfectly fine way of sorting in a random way. Then there, there may very well be an average level of performance. And if everybody, if every other developer's performance of that snapshot, that's better or worse than average, if it's within those calculated limits, all of those developers' performance is being driven by the system in which they work. Now, people can participate in improving said system, yeah. Organizations that love ranking, you know, sites, teams, organizations, like I've looked at data within the United States, a veterans health administration, um, healthcare system. You look at sites within a region and, and NHS England does this. They love ranking hospitals. And if you're in the bottom performing group, you're on the naughty list and then come and get the extra attention and help. If you look <laughs> at performance of these sites within a VA region, you look at salespeople and like... A top performer, one snapshot, one month, one quarter, may guess what? Be a bottom performer the next period, because you know what? It's a real life version of the red beat game. Yeah. If people's performance over time and their performance within a peer group is within the same statistical realm, you can't start ascribing individual skill, individual effort to random Fluctuation in the system. And again, people don't like to think that the output of their work is on some, to some extent, random, 
right? Yeah. Now, if I was a salesperson who was just not making any sales calls and not doing my work, you would probably see them as an outlaw on the chart. Now, yeah. if half of your salespeople were not doing any work and that they're part of a system, yeah. like yeah. what kind of system is hiring and not managing them and, and what have you. So it's, again, like whether it's time series or even comparisons within a group, we're trying to distinguish noise versus signals. Yeah. Is there a change in the system or is somebody in somehow working in a different system, quote unquote? So talk to me about the, the podcasts. What are the differences between them? Yeah, thanks. So the Lean Podcast, which I, I started in 2006, and it's got a clunky name because I started a blog in 2005 called Lean Blog. It's at leanblog.org. I started doing a podcast about a year later and podcasting was all still very new. And originally I just called it the lean blog podcast, which um, fine. It's not the name I would choose today. I did tweak it a little bit to call it lean blog interviews because it is an interview style format. That's an offshoot of uh, my blog. So there we talk um, about uh, lean in different settings. I have a lot of guests from manufacturing, a lot of them from healthcare. Sometimes to, to me, software is not a core topic, but I, I invite people. Eric Reese has been a guest on the podcast a couple of times. Jim Benson, who's very well known mm -hmm. for the personal Kanban methodology and others. But you know, like the common theme is lean leadership, even if people are using slightly different names for it. And then as a pandemic project, a lot of people wrote a book. Maybe I should have written another. I decided to start a new podcast and I'm <laughs> using uh, my coffee mug with the logo here. It's called My Favorite Mistake. And this is, I think, more a broader business podcast mm -hmm. where I've interviewed people, entrepreneurs, CEOs of established companies, retired professional athletes, entertainers, people from all different types of work who start off telling a story about something they consider to be their favorite mistake. It's not, the podcast isn't called my biggest mistake. That might be sad. Sometimes the favorite mistake is a big one, but a favorite mistake is big enough. It's meaningful enough to us where it's something we remember. It's something that we've learned from. It's something we've reflected on and people share those stories. And then we you know, also talk about mistakes in their domain of work, or how do we create an environment where it's safe for people to admit mistakes or to point out mistakes without um, naming, blaming, and shaming being the response. It's not a quote-unquote lean podcast. Some of my guests do come from, but it's really, it's a broader reflection on realizing that we all make mistakes, but the key is, you know, recognizing them and learning from them instead mm -hmm. of being stubborn or, you know, reactionary or blaming in some way. So that's been fun. It's almost 120 episodes now, comes out twice a week because originally I was going to do a weekly podcast, but I was surprised there were so many people willing to talk story about their mistakes and, uh, and being reflective. The, one of the guests in episode number one was Kevin Harrington, who was on the first season of the show Shark Tank mm -hmm. uh, for people who watch uh, that program. And uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And then one of the other podcasts you mentioned is called Habitual Excellence. That's a podcast that um, I do on behalf of the firm Value Capture, Lean Healthcare. So that podcast is also interviews, mostly people in healthcare, healthcare executives, healthcare leaders, advocates for patient safety improvement, people like that. That that podcast comes out every two weeks. So on on, on average, I'm, I'm between these different podcasts, putting out two episodes a week. Um, to me, it's a lot of fun. It's 
hey, doing a podcast, maybe like you, you might be exper experiencing Luke. It's great for networking. It's great to be able to meet and talk with people and have a conversation. And oh, by the way, I'm going to share that with other people. With a few other people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. It's been, it's been great fun. The book again is measures of success and thank you. For the, and it's, it's for available the in uh, both paperback and Kindle formats. Um, uh, listeners outside the United States can find it either through Amazon in your country, or the book is also distributed more broadly outside of Amazon, but the only electronic book format is the Amazon Kindle format. Okay. Great. Hopefully thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show.